We have been studying God's design for men and women over the past few weeks. We have been talking about how the world has essentially made a mess and brought about quite a bit of confusion about what it means to be a man and what it means to be a woman. And it is important for us, if we are to understand who we are, if we are to understand our roles as men and women and to understand our identities as men and women, that the place to look for that would be to the one who made us, to look at the Creator and see what God has to say about those things. Uh, If you've missed the past lessons, it would probably be useful to you to go back and listen to those online because uh, this kind of now is the finale to what those lessons have been in talking about now our roles as men and women. We have talked about in these past few lessons that what has been seemingly obvious to our eyes has begun to be denied by our culture and by our world that God made us male and female and by doing so then He made us different. And the goal then is not for men and women to be the same but that rather Genesis teaches that we were made to be in complement to one another. And so by complementing one another we are working together then for the glory of God through our differences to glorify those differences and uphold those differences rather than trying to deny the difference and merging us uh, together as if we were to be only of one gender that God made us male and female and so understanding that we're going to spend our time this morning then talking about well what is God's vision for men and women what is God's vision of the roles of men and women and what are we supposed to do We saw that last time men and women are in complement, but what does that look like then in practice? And that's what we're going to spend our time thus talking about. Before we can really get into that, I think it's important to have an understanding of what happened in Genesis chapter 3, which was read for us this morning. In in Genesis chapter 3, we have a description of the curse that is placed first on the serpent and then on the woman and, and then on the man. And I think a lot of attention has been brought to the first part of the curse that was given to the woman and probably a complete uh, skipping of the rest of what was said concerning that curse. To the woman, he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain, you shall bring forth children. We'll typically just put the period there and say, there you go. That's the curse and that's that's the end of the story. But there's more that God said about that. Your desire shall be for your husband and he shall rule over you. And to slow down for a minute and consider that can't be a positive statement. You know, that sounds good, right? Well, uh, your desire will be for your husband. This is a curse. So this can't be saying, okay, and now you're going to want and desire your husband, ladies. That's not a curse. That's not a problem. That's the way it's supposed to be. There's a curse that's being stated here. And that word desire that I've highlighted there is an interesting word. And you'll get an idea of what's being said here when you turn forward one chapter and listen that it's the exact same wording that God speaks to Cain. When God speaks to Cain, he says, if you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is for you, but you must rule over it. 
Notice that last sentence is the exact same construction as what was stated to the woman. That your desire will be for your husband, but he will rule over you. Same same language, same exact statement. And so what I want us to see is that it says, when it says that your desire will be for him, that that's not a positive, but it's actually stating a negative. And that's what this idea is is about. Now, some of the translations actually try to get a handle around that by saying, like, the net does a great job here. You will want to control your husband, but he will dominate you. That's really the sense of what this curse is describing, that there is going to be conflict now because of the sin. New Living Translation does the same thing. You will desire your, your desire to control your husband, but he will rule over you. What God is saying now is that there's going to be a conflict and the conflict is going to look like this. She is going to try to take the lead and she'll be tempted to try to do that and he is going to be tempted to be passive and not take the leadership role that God has given to him. And the reason why I think that's important for us to get a sense of as we hear this curse and hear what God is saying that has occurred because of sin is because what God is saying then about these things is that it's a natural overthrow of what God originally intended. What we are reading about in the curse is not what God wanted. And we know that by week. I just put up a, a handful of verses there. We know what 1 Timothy 2, Ephesians 5, 1 Peter 3, all of these passages say about what the relationship between man and woman is supposed to look like. Here's what the marriage relationship is supposed to be. Here's the harmony that's supposed to exist. But here God says, because you've sinned, you're going to be in conflict. And there's going to be a struggle. And it's going to be difficult and you are going to be tempted to go outside of your roles that God has given you to do. And I submit to you why we need to read that curse is because what this is saying is that all of us have a natural resistance to what God says we are supposed to do as men and women. You hear that? We will have a natural resistance against what God has designed men and women to be. And I think we're, we see that in our culture. I just think we absolutely see that. There is an absolute resistance to the ideas that God speaks of about how men and women are to operate together as read like in Ephesians chapter 5, as read in like 1 Peter 3. There is going to be resistance to that. And that's what the curse is saying. The curse is saying because you've sinned, what should have been harmony and ease is now going to be in conflict. That sin has broken this picture of of what the marriage is supposed to look like, but now that we're supposed to default to that and go, well, hey, you know what, guys? Uh, everybody, it, marriage is just going to be tough and it's always going to be a conflict and it's always going to be a battle. That's the way God said, no. That's why we have all these scriptures where God is saying, but obedience to His laws will restore the picture that God had originally intended. The image in in Genesis 3 is sin has broken the way the relationship ought to be. Now there will be conflict. Genesis 2 that we saw last time, the two were made to complement each other, to work together, to be in harmony, to enjoy one another. Sin enters the world. Guess what? Conflict. Problem. 
difficulty, temptation to over to uh, assert themselves over each other. That's what the curse is describing. We can't leave that line off and only focus on, yep, childbearing is going to be painful. There's going to be conflict now as well between men and women. But that's not what God intends. And that's why the New Testament is filled with pictures like the marriage relationship between the man and the woman is to be like Christ in the church, Ephesians 5. That here is God saying, here's what it's supposed to be. And by our obedience to his laws, we can restore that picture. But I start off with this just to recognize the things that we will talk about this morning and the things that we've talked about over the last couple of weeks we will have a natural resistance to because that's part of the curse is that there's going to be this temptation to be in conflict rather than to do what God has called us to do. So in the effort of equal time, I made sure of it. I have one page for men. I have one page for women. (laughs) Here we go. And we'll talk about these roles, God's vision for men and God's vision for women. We'll begin with the men because that's easier for me. All right. We'll talk about myself and what we're called to do. I think one of the best summaries that we might be able to lay upon what God describes for men to be in this relationship would be something to this effect that men are given the calling by God to take the primary responsibility for a Christ-like servant leadership, protection and provision in the home. And we can go to all kinds of places in the New Testament to merge those ideas where we see like in Ephesians 5 where the wives are said that your husband is to be the head. And then we turn just a few pages or a few verses later and it says who is supposed to then train and nurture and discipline the children. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but raise them in the nurture and the admonition of the Lord. That's laid upon the fathers and not the mothers. And so we take these images and we put them together and these teachings and recognize that God has given the primary responsibility, not the sole responsibility, but the primary responsibility of servant leadership in a Christ-like way in caring, providing, and protecting the home that has been laid upon the man. And I think we would get that even if we didn't have all of the overwhelming New Testament passages like 1 Peter 3 and Ephesians 5 and 1 Timothy 2 and all these kinds of passages that even in the curse that we see that. You see that there in verse 17 when God now addresses Adam. The first thing that he says is because you listen to the voice of your wife. And now we like to make a joke of that, right? You know, oh, so you shouldn't listen, you know, but that's not the idea so much as when you read that picture of that temptation, you sometimes have the image in your mind that the only people there was the serpent and the woman. And that's not right. He was right there. Adam was right there. And he's not doing anything. He's not speaking up. He's not saying, no, no, we're not going to do this. Stop this. This is sin. This is wrong. He sat there and he was passive and agreed. And that's what's being said. Because you listened to the voice of your wife and you ate the fruit of the tree, you were supposed to do something about that, Adam. And so here, even in Genesis, we have this image that he is to be responsible for the family. He is to be responsible for the home, that he receives equal condemnation for what has occurred and bears responsibility for what took place there. 
And I think that's really important just because I think it is fair to say that our culture is very much at war with the roles that God gave men to accomplish. That we are very much in a culture and a society right now that is extremely dismissive of men, extremely dismissive of them being leaders and spiritual leaders in the home, extremely dismissive of them being protectors and providers. We talked about that in the last lesson. We talked about, hey, you know, uh, trample the women and children and save yourself off the boat. I mean, that's that's where we're at in our in our world right now. A total dismissiveness of that. We see that in our television. We see that in books. We see that in TV shows and movies that he is relegated to uselessness. He is not necessary for a family dynamic. He's not needed in the relationship whatsoever. And every TV show simply has him as the buffoon who maybe gets a paycheck, sits on the couch, and is made fun of by the wife and the children. That's all that he's been now put to. And that's not God's vision. And even though that's funny... That's not the vision that God has. And we have to be careful that we recognize that it is a way that our culture is waging war on the description and the role of what a man is supposed to do. Now, I think it's important we talk about this picture that then the man has God's divine calling here of a primary responsibility to lead in a servant way, in a Christ-like way, for the good protection and provision of the home that we talk about uh, what that looks like and what that means and what that doesn't mean. Because I think that kind of language is what has often caused somewhat of a reaction in our society that we need to explain. For example, that doesn't mean male dominance. Being the primary leader or being primarily responsible for the outcome of the family and being a leader of the home or to use the language of uh, 1 Timothy 3 to rule the household well, to have that responsibility on you doesn't mean now you have the right to dominate force or control. That's not what it means to be the leader. That's not what it means to take primary responsibility of the home. And what that's important is the scriptures all over the place condemn that kind of thinking and condemn that kind of behavior. Now, how often it's told of the husbands that there is a parallel that's supposed to exist. Husbands, the way you're supposed to take on this primary responsibility of spiritual leadership in the home is you're supposed to look how Christ loved the church. Well, that's a very, very big picture. Because you think about how Christ has brought about his leadership and how he shows himself as the one responsible to lead and and give himself as he did. Consider that Jesus did not come to the earth and force submission. He could have done that. He has the power to do that. He could have walked on the earth and said, obey me. And if you didn't, he just nuked you. All right, next, you, you follow. I mean, it could have just been military style, obey or die. And he didn't do that. Jesus doesn't force submission. He doesn't dominate, force, compel, make you do something. Amazingly, God, who has power over all the earth, create all things, has left every single person to decide if they're going to love him and obey him or not. Not compelled, not forced. In fact, how does he try to compel us to obey him and follow him, but through sacrifice, right? 
That's how Jesus calls for our submission. It's not by making us or strong-arming us, but by dying for us so that we look at that and go, now I want to submit. Now I want to obey. Now I want to give myself. So Jesus becomes the, the beautiful example of what it looks like. That spiritual leadership from the man is not about control. It's not about force. It's not about dominating. It's about sacrificing. The scriptures never tell the man you're the head, make her submit. Anytime there's that submission text, notice it always talks to her, not to him. It always tells her, submit to him. Doesn't tell him, make sure she's submitting. Wrong. You, husbands, sacrifice. You give yourself. You are to give yourself for your wife. You are to give yourself for your children. And I submit to you, that in essence is what makes a man a man and what God has defined a man to be. Is a man then sacrifices himself. He gives himself. A boy is about himself. And he takes and it's all about him and the world revolves around him and it's all about him. But a man steps up and recognizes it's not about me. It's about sacrifice. It's about giving. It's about using what God has given me for the glory of God and for the good of others. And I will yield and sacrifice myself for others. And so that's the picture of what this is to look like. It's not male dominance. And in the same way, just as much as we talk about this reaction against this primary responsibility of leadership, it doesn't mean that he's smarter or more valuable or more competent or more capable. This one drives me up the wall when I see this kind of discussion happen in our society. You say, okay, men, you're given primary responsibility as leaders. Does that mean that she can't be that way? We talked about this in our last lesson. We're not talking about what she can and can't do. That has nothing to do with it. We're not saying that she's less valuable or incapable or unable or less intelligent or any of those kinds of things. That has nothing to do with it. I believe we could easily argue, of course she's able to do all those things. Of course she has the talent and the intelligence and the ability and all of those things to do that. That's not the point of what we're talking about. The difference in the roles between men and women does not mean that there is a difference in competency or a difference in intelligence. And I readily admit that in my own marriage. My wife is far smarter than I am. Way smarter. And is far more capable of doing a whole number of things over what I am able to do. But that doesn't change the fact that I bear the primary responsibility of the outcome of the home. And I married her because she's so smart. And I married her because she's able to do so many things. Not to quell that and get rid of that, but so that that would be part of what this family unit and how it would function together. Is a recognition of those towns and a recognition of these. That's what's supposed to happen. That's what this complement idea is about in Genesis 2. And it's not at all a statement of, well, less intelligent, less competent, less capable, less value, any of those kinds of things. And there's a way that we know that that the scriptures speak of so strongly that just bursts off the page how often does Jesus talk about his submission to the will of the father so is he less capable less competent less valuable less able Uh, absolutely not equal in every way 
equally capable, equally intelligent, equally valuable, equally God in all facets, yet submits to the will of the Father. That's all the idea is. It speaks to nothing, to nothing in regard to the woman at all. It doesn't speak to her abilities or competency levels or any of those kinds of things. And if there is any communication of such, such that is flatly sinful. That is not what the scriptures are talking about. The scriptures are simply saying that to the man, he is going to bear the primary responsibility of the spiritual leadership of the home. It rests on him. He will be responsible for those things. And the blessing that I think the scriptures are trying to show us again and again, that I think women should hear, and I'll speak to the men about this when we get to the women's side, but women should hear that women are going to flourish. And they are going to have joy in this relationship where the husband leads well. That that's the way God built it. And that the curse was that they would conflict and fight and try to struggle with each other and try to be one person up over the other. And God is saying, if you won't do that, there will be flourishing in the relationship and that she as a woman will flourish as God desires her to when she understands and enjoys this relationship where he leads the family, where he then leads well. And he bears that primary responsibility. That's what God has desired for that. And so even though he is described as a spiritual leader of the home, think about all the things, men, you have been called to do as a spiritual leader. For example, you're called to honor your wife. You are to honor her. And that is a very, very beautiful and big picture of what that looks like in a marriage relationship, that the honor goes to her. The attention goes to her. To be understanding of her is the next statement that Peter gives him there. You're supposed to dwell with her, live with her in a way that understands her. You don't dominate force or anything like that. You live in a way that understands who she is and understand where she's coming from and honor her differences. That you would understand like Ephesians 5 and verse 25. You lead like Jesus did which is a leading in humility, a leading in love, a leading with self-sacrifice. This is what this leadership looks like in men. This is how God is honored in our role. In the role that God has given us to rule the household well, to be the primary responsibility for the spiritual well-being of the house and to lead the house, that this is how God is honored. When we do it in a way that is God-honoring, wife-honoring, child-honoring, that we are showing ourselves as spiritual leaders, doing such in an understanding way, in humility, in love, in self-sacrifice. And so then as I conclude the man side, I would say this. If your wife, men, is not what you desire her to be, don't nudge her or try to give her a clue that that's the case. This is within yourself. (laughs) But men, if you think, okay, she's just not what I desire her to be, then you focus on leading well yourself and sacrificing yourself for her. Because that's what you've been called to do. Your job, your role is to lead well, to lead spiritually well, to lead for her honor, to lead for her concern and sacrifice yourself for her. You focus on that. That's all you can do. You can't make her be or do anything. 
You do your role that God has given you to perform. All right. Now to the other side of the coin. The main text that I'd like to use that I think is useful is is Titus chapter 2 as well. And I put that in the bulletin and I think it's a useful place for us to consider for a couple of reasons. You notice what what, uh, the Apostle Paul writes to Titus. He tells Titus in Titus 2 verse 3, Older women likewise are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers or slaves to much wine. They are to teach what is good and so train the young women to love their husbands and children, to be self controlled, pure, working at home, kind and submissive to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be reviled. And the word that I'm underlining or the phrase that I'm underlining that is highlighted on the board that I want you to consider is notice that it says that the older women should train the younger women to do these things. And the reason why we should observe that is I want us to recognize what that means is the things that God just said for the women to do is not natural or instinctive. Now, you might think that when you read them go, well, it says to love their husbands and love their children and all all that. And the reason why I want us to think about that is then that means the way God is describing how to love your husbands and love your children and be what God has called you to be is not necessarily what you think it is by instinct. Because he says, older women, you have to teach the younger women how to do this. You have to train them in these characteristics. And so this tells us then this is not something you just wake up and naturally do. Just as much as I don't think the man wakes up and naturally says, I will give myself today. (laughs) In the same way, women do not naturally wake up and go, this is the way it's going to be. That This is a challenge. And this is what we're seeing coming off of Genesis 3. Our natural inclination is conflict and not to be in complement to one another. So let's talk about some of the things that, that are in here. The phrases that I'm going to pick out from Titus 2 verses 3 through 5 are the ones that are that are certainly women only directed because self-control is certainly to men and to women being pure is to men and to women and doing good is for men and to women but there are these three things that are unique in that text and they're extremely similar Love your, their husbands and children, working at home, submissive to their own husbands. Those three lines are given there uh, by the Apostle Paul to Titus. And the reason why I think that we observe that is when you consider that God told the women to do that. And that God told the men to be loving in humility, lead with self-sacrifice. You see a beautiful relationship that is intended by God. That God tells the men, you pay attention to your wife and you honor her and respect her and you lead her and you lead like Christ led the church. And then turn around to the woman and say, now you love your husband and you submit to your husband and you give yourself to your husband. And what did God do when he did that? He said, men, you think about her and he said, women, you think about him. And if everybody does that right, everybody's going to be okay. (laughs) The problem is, then the men start thinking about themselves and the women start thinking about themselves. And now we go haywire and we're back to the curse and we've got conflict again. Notice how God designed it. Men, don't think about yourself, think about them sacrifice. Women, don't think about yourself, you think about him at sacrifice. This is the idea of Genesis 2. 
This is what Genesis 2 is picturing of this complement that the male and the female are meant to be together. This is the beautiful picture. And to women, this is how you're honoring God. This picture that's given here by the Apostle Paul to Titus, love your husbands and children, to work at home submissive to their own husbands. This is a picture of what it looks like. I believe the Old Testament had just a beautiful vision of that in Proverbs chapter 31, where you have this worthy woman or excellent wife, virtuous woman picture that, that's given there. One of the statements that's made about a description of her is there in verse 12 where it says, she does him good and not harm all the days of her life. And I submit to you, that's exactly what Paul was telling Titus to tell the older women to teach the younger women. That's what that looks like. Is that you will do him good and you will not do him harm all of the days of your life. Now think about, that's exactly what the men were told to do too, wasn't it? <laughs> so you're going to love her as Christ of the church and give yourself for her. Again, God is telling both as giving of self to not focus on self, to focus on the other. And so here she's being told that she does not act for herself, but that she acts for him. In fact, when you read all of Proverbs 31, I don't have time, it'd keep us another 10 minutes, but go home and read it this afternoon and you read all of Proverbs 31 you will notice that every single thing it says that she is doing is for the good of the husband and the children every single line it doesn't speak of her doing anything for herself it is always describing she rises up early in the morning and is doing this and is doing that and everything that she does has a complete focus upon the husband and the children all throughout that. And I want us just to recognize that's what God is talking about right here in the New Testament when Titus is given these directions of love your husband and your children, be workers at home, be submissive to your husbands. Your focus is on him and the children. Your focus is on the home. Your care and concern is about those things. You will do them good all the days of your life. That's your focus. Your focus will not be on yourself, but you will sacrifice yourself for what is for his good and for the children's good. To sum that up, I'd put it this way then. If what you are doing is not doing good for your husband and for your children, but is causing harm, you have to stop. That's what this is saying. That's what Proverbs 31 is saying. That's the whole idea of love your husbands and your children and train them to do this. Uh, Older women, train the younger women to do this. To consider, now what is really for his good? And what is really for the good of the children? And please consider that doesn't just simply mean sinful things. That's anything. Any action that would be to his detriment or any action that would be to the detriment to the children, that has to stop. And friends, I believe that's what Ephesians 5.33 would mean when it says at the end there that she's to respect her husband. Doesn't say, well, he doesn't deserve my respect. Doesn't say that doesn't say he has to earn it. Just says you do it. You respect him. How? By doing him good. That's how you show him respect. You do what's good for him. You do what's right by him. You do what's good for the home. You do what's good for the family. That the family is always your focus and your concern. That's the responsibility that is given to you. And so love and respect then is by doing what is good for the family. 
And catch this, not necessarily what you think is good for the family. And the reason I say that is because the older women were commanded to train the younger women to love and respect. So that means that's not a natural thing. That the most natural inclination may not be what is actually for his good and for the children's good. That it will require a step back and a deep consideration of what can I do to sacrifice myself that is really for their good. And I'm not really acting for my good, but I'm acting for his good, for the children's good. And would definitely require a discussion of, well, what can be done to for the good of the family? What can be done so that this would be the right thing, so that the family is flourishing, so that the family is doing well, so that he is doing well? And so, to state the other side, we talked about women flourishing when men then lead properly. With a proper primary responsibility of spiritual leadership, the women will flourish. In the same way, men are going to flourish and have joy in the relationship when the wife yields and helps the relationship in all areas of life. That's what's being described by Paul to Titus. Is this is how it's going to, how it's going to grow and flourish and how there will be a wonderful relationship. Is when he leads well and he leads in humility for her good and honoring her. And he will flourish when she then yields to him and helps him in the relationship in all areas of life and does what is good for him and good for the children. I would add this as well. That we must understand then, as I mentioned a moment ago, that God doesn't tell the men to take submission from her. But women, you're supposed to give it. And you're not supposed to expect him to demand it of you. You're not supposed to go, well, he's never said I needed to submit. He's not supposed to. (laughs) He's not supposed to tell you that. (laughs) He'd be wrong to tell you that. You're supposed to give it. Submission is not taken. Submission is willfully given. And that's what God has called for women to do in that relationship. And let me underline that a little bit further then. That women, then submission is given even when the outcome is less desirable. And the reason I have to say that is because, friends, that's the essence of submission. You're not submitting if everything is going the way you want it to go. I mean, I'm not submitting to anything. Submitting to your, let's put it this way. Are you submitting to your employer if you agree with everything the employer says to do? No, you're agreeing with everything. When are you submitting to your employer? When you do what you don't think is the best idea, but your employer says, this is what we've got to do, and you do it anyway. That's what submission looks like. And in the same way, women, it's not about, well, I have to agree with everything that we're doing, otherwise I will not submit. Mm-mm. That's not what God says to do. Submission is willfully giving that and yielding to him and yielding to what is best for the family and yielding to what is best for him and the children even if the outcome is not so desirable. There's a lot of ways that plays out. I mean, if I have to say, you know, uh, honey, we're moving to Minneapolis. I'm going to move move up there. And what's she going to do? Park here and say, nope, I'm staying right here. And hope you like Minneapolis. <laughs> you know, is that, that may not be the desirable outcome and she wouldn't want to go, but that's what submission looks like. And we have to recognize that. To put this in another way, And to tie it to the curse, the goal is not competition. 
that we should look at marriage not in competition, that the goal is not to destroy each other, the goal is not to exercise superiority over each other, the goal is to complete one another, the goal is to complement one another. And that's what we saw was so beautiful with what God designed in Genesis 2, that she was made to be the perfect complement for him to fill all that was lacking. It was a beautiful statement that we see that God makes concerning her. And so that doesn't mean then, well, here I am to now be in competition to you or usurp you or overthrow you or destroy you or wreck you. It's supposed to be working together. And I want us to consider when our marriages turn into a competition or turn into this kind of battle or destruction or exercising superiority, that's falling into the temptation of the curse. That's giving in to the problem of the curse where there was going to be conflict and battle that God did not intend. But when we follow Ephesians 5 and 1 Peter 3 and 1 Timothy 2, that conflict will erase itself. It's a beautiful vision. I wanted to bring up one other interesting thing that's stated in the Proverbs concerning the worthy woman. Right in the middle of this discussion about she's doing him well, she wakes up and she's on the spindle and the needle and she's doing all these things that are good for the family. There's this statement. Her husband is known in the gates when he sits among the elders of the land. And then the text continues to go on and talk about all the things that she's doing and good for him and she's doing for the house and doing for the children. And here she goes and here she goes. She's doing all these wonderful things as she is the excellent woman who can find such a one. But right in the middle it says this about her husband. And remember, in that day and time, for the man to be at the gates and among the elders of the land meant that he was successful. He was a leader that was respected and honored and listened to. He had uh, that kind of influence in the city. So is this saying the worthy woman always picks a successful man? And as we get along, she's doing this, she's doing that, and she always picks a winner. No. (laughs) The idea is you're the reason why he's successful. Right in the middle of all of those declarations about all the good that she does for him and for the children is a recognition that she's the reason why he's able to be in that position. The reason why he is a success. The reason why he's respected. That should be so true. And that should be so God-honoring to you ladies to recognize. I think most men would recognize she's the reason why I am where I am. She's the reason why I've been able to do what I do and I'm the kind of person that I am. That's what the scriptures are talking about, is that you would have that kind of influence and that kind of, of help and love and concern for him that you're doing good for him to such a degree that it is for his benefit that's even tangible in the community, tangible among people, that people would see that clearly she's the reason why behind that. I can't help but say I appreciate my wife so much for that. I mean, the only reason I can do this is because of her. There's just no other way. I could be doing this at all with you if it wasn't for her support and all that she does behind the scenes that I won't go into. It's a wonderful thing. That's what it's supposed to look like. 
And so, as I said to the men, let me say this now to the women. Women, if your husband is not what you desired him to be, and again, put the elbows down, all right? (laughs) Women, if he's not what you had desired him to be, do things that would cause success in his life. Do things that would encourage him. Do things that would be doing good for him and for the children. Not complaining to him or trying to compete with him or trying to destroy him. That's not what God has decreed. But do good by him and show that to him. And consider men, if she's not what you want her to be, and I said to you, so lead well, honor her, respect her, and do all of those things. And women, if he's not what you desired him to be, so then you do good by him, and you then try to cause his success and sacrifice yourself and do what's good for him. Guess how that's going to turn out? Pretty good. If both the men and the women will do that, things are going to turn out just right in the marriage. Both focusing on one another, both giving themselves to one another, is exactly what God described the man and woman relationship to be. One more thing. What if you're not married yet? You just just completely ignored. We talked about men and women. And here, all you did was talk about marriage. But I want you to consider how God in the Scriptures always gives a vision of men and women in regards to the marriage relationship. I mean, think about, there's not some special text. Now, here's where he talks about how how to be single. No. Everything that God always talks about in regards to men and women is always what they're supposed to do in their behavior toward God and toward one another. And he always uses men and women in that kind of marriage relationship. So what are we supposed to understand from that? Except that means if you're single, you start practicing these things right now. It doesn't mean you have to be married. We talked about that like a few weeks ago. It doesn't mean you have to be married to be right with God. But recognize that these are the things that you practice, these kind of qualities. So, single men... Single men then would be working, showing their willingness to sacrifice for women, ready to protect, provide for her, living a life devoted to the Lord. And single women, that's what you should be looking for in a single man. You should be watching for single men who are doing that. (laughs) You watch for them who are living a life devoted to the Lord, who are working, who are willing to sacrifice, who are willing to care for you, who are willing to give themselves up for you, who show that at every stop. That's what you're looking for. Single men, you're supposed to be practicing that because when you get married, that's what you're supposed to do. By the same token, single women, we see in 1 Timothy 2, 9 through 10, they're supposed to be professing godliness with their modesty and their self-control, and they're showing good works, living a life devoted to the Lord. Men, single men, you're supposed to be looking for that kind of woman, professing godliness, does that in her character, shows godliness in who she is and by what she, how she dresses. She professes godliness in her behavior and her activities, living a life fully devoted to the Lord, showing good works in the things that she does. That's what you're supposed to be looking for, and the single women practice that. That's the vision that God has for men and women. I would hope, when you think about me and come to this conclusion now of all these things, for God to make us to not to compete, but to appreciate that men are different than women, and women are different from men, and it's supposed to be that way. 
that women excel and have a purpose given to them by God, and men excel and have a purpose given to them by God. And what a beautiful thing that God said, I will make man and woman different in such a way that they will complement one another and work together beautifully as God's design in marriage was intended. And when both man and woman do as God has described, there will be harmony and God will be glorified. But what happens is we lose sight of our role. We lose sight of what we were called to do. We focus on self and say, well, I've got to think about myself. No, you don't. It's not your job. It's not your role. <laughs> your role is the concern for the other person and to sacrifice yourself for the other. And if we will show that in our marriages, like Christ in the church, how much of an impact we could make in the community that would be God-glorifying of, look, this is what relationships are supposed to look like. Don't listen to the world that says it's about competition, trying to you know, bite and devour and compete with each other and be on top and be superior and who's better and who's best. And nonsense. To show people the beautiful design for what it means to be a man and what it means to be a woman and a beautiful design for marriage. I hope we'll do that as God's people and proclaim that to the world around us. You pour your song books out, we sing invitation song now. We invite you really to see the wisdom of what God has said to do. And I believe the challenge is, just like everything, is that our natural inclination is often to reject the wisdom of God. Whether it be in terms of the roles of men and women, whether it be in terms of what marriage is supposed to be, whether it means in terms of our submission to God and handling our emotions and behaviors, it's always a constant battle of what we think is right is not the way God says to go. And the challenge to recognize that God's way is the better way and his laws have been given for our good. That he told us this is the way to live and by doing so you will have abundant life. And you will have enjoyable life and you will have the blessings that God wants you to have if you will not live for self. But live for the Lord your God with all of your heart. Will you see the blessing of following him and serving him today? Turn away from your sins. Turn away from living for self. Living for what we think is best. And instead doing what God says is best. Confessing Jesus to be the son of God. Who sacrificed himself for our sins. The ultimate picture of submission. The greatest picture of love. The greatest picture of mercy and grace that was ever displayed was on that cross. And Jesus showed us what it means to be submissive to him by giving ourselves to the Lord Jesus. Be immersed in water for the forgiveness of your sins. And in that, you begin a relationship with Jesus. Have your sins washed away and belong to him all the days of your life. Will you come and do that now while we stand and while we sing?